Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 145 of the Speaking Club podcast. Today, I wanted to share this quote from Reba McIntyre, an American country singer, songwriter, actress and record producer worth $95 million. She hasn't got where she is by being somewhere else. And here's what she had to say. To succeed in life, you need three things. A wishbone, a backbone and a funny bone. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, If you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey there, welcome to the show and thanks again for choosing to listen to The Speaking Club. Well, today my guest is Paul Archer. Paul is a lawyer, a trainer and a campaigner who can make even the most complex things simple and relatable. And as an employment lawyer, he's represented both employers and the aggrieved, creating compelling arguments to win over tribunal panels. As a trainer, he's worked with many companies and charities, making the law accessible and manageable. And as a campaigner, he's championed many causes, predominantly to fight poverty, but also to make the world a better place. And Paul is also my ex-husband, and co-parent to our daughter. I've been trying to get Paul onto the speaking club for a long time and we finally managed to make it happen, so I'm really pleased about that. And on the show, he's going to share how he sets about making the complex simple and builds arguments that create epiphanies and make people care. And if you listen through, you'll hear some fantastic examples of where he does just that on this show. Before we head over to the interview, though, I just wanted to let you know that the next Snackable Story Challenge is coming up soon. And we had an interesting question from one of the recent challengers, Alison. She said to me one day on a coaching session, Sarah, do you find that the people on the challenge find the story from their life with a lesson that they most need to hear right now? Do you know what? To be honest, I hadn't really thought about it. But when I checked in with other people, I actually found there's a lot of truth to it. So what I'd say now is come and join the challenge, not only to discover your snackable stories and how to make them engaging and powerful so that you can grow your audience and business, but also maybe to get a lesson from your subconscious that you might just need right now. And you can find out more about joining the challenge and what, it, what it's all about, what happens at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. And I hope to see you there. Right, on with the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Paul Archer. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. Uh, it's, I've been wanting to get you on the show for quite a long time now. And I'm glad we finally made it happen. So lots to talk to you about. The first question I have, though, is about what you ended up doing career-wise. So you, you ended up being being a lawyer, being a solicitor, working in employment law. Was Did you always want to do that, or did you have a different boyhood ambition? 
Yeah, no, not not really, Sarah. So, um, you know, my first ambition, like many, was to be a professional footballer. <laughs> this was my. I came from a small town in Surrey, a place called Virginia Water. And I was the best, at the age of 12 and 13, I was the best footballer in all of Virginia Water, which I, you know, misunderstood as meaning I was, in fact, the best footballer in the world. <laughs> <laughs> My world was the small town where I grew up. So I vainly imagined that uh, a career in professional football lay ahead of me and really thought about nothing else other than football for a good 10 years, really. Uh, but of course, it wasn't true. And uh, then I broke my leg. It was never going to happen, Sarah. So then how did I end up in law? It wasn't as a result of any thinking about it. It was always by accident. So what I really wanted to do in my very early adult life a campaigner you know I had this idea at a you know in my late teenage years having had a very unhappy adolescence and then got over that I thought to do good in the world is to be some sort of therapist to help those people in a terrible miserable anxious and depressed like I was so I thought social that's the thing to do so I went off and did a social work, after doing a degree, went off and did a social work training course in Oxford and did all that and, you know, finished it all on that. But along the way, became very disillusioned with the idea of social work. Partly because I suppose I went into it thinking, well, this is about sort of some kind of therapeutic inter intervention. It really wasn't that kind of thing. I also did some work in probation with young offenders and used to meet kids in prison and older guys in prison. And what just struck me for the first time was some of the kind of terrible conditions people were living in. I mean, apart from the horror of seeing Oxford prison and seeing, you know, particularly I remember a young man who was in a very bad uh psychiatric state, being locked up, offences uh, uh, in Oxford prison. And it was bad you know, to see him. But I saw a lot of homeless people, a lot of people in a pretty desperate state. And I thought, really, you know, this idea that the world needs therapy, this is wrong. What the world needs is social justice. What the world needs is fairness. The world needs policy campaigners. And that was my my life as a, a poverty campaigner. It was a poverty, it was a campaign around social security law. It was a big deal in the mid-1980s. In the UK, it was the, the beginning of mass unemployment. In the UK, never had mass unemployment. There was a lot of campaigning activity. And it was the beginning of homelessness. For those around at the time will know, they didn't used to be homeless people. And then... By the end of the 1980s, there were a lot of homeless people. This was the result of a series of social policy choices. And I was involved in campaigning uh, with others uh, around social security and housing, making myself less and less employable along the way. <laughs> so just yeah. to go back, so basically what happened was, if I've, if I've understood this right, so you, you wanted to do social work, but effectively what you saw was... The, the effect and you wanted to impact on the cause 
which for a lot of these people was poverty that that they ended up in those situations requiring social workers to help them. Is that is that right? Yeah, sort of. So yeah, no, short, short answer is yes. You know, so um, people can be in different states of sort of vulnerability. Some people are resilient and some people are more vulnerable. People are in different states of mental health and physical health. But, you know, being unable to get a decent job, being unable to secure a place to live, that's so a decent place to live, and not having an income can sort of push you push you over. So you might have a pre-existing vulnerability. But, I mean, the people who we would see at the, uh, at the Social Security sort of advisory project where I worked tended to be those who were the most vulnerable. And sort of during the course of the 80s, they were gradually sort of, well, I had the sense they were being abandoned, really. And so I became, uh, you know, it became increasingly difficult to employ, probably myself. But what I did know a lot about, as it turned out, was I knew a lot about, I mean, a lot about social security law. I, got, I finally actually got a proper job working as a welfare rights advisor on social security law uh, on a rundown housing estate uh, and uh, worked there for a few years. And then just by accident, got another job and they just happened to have no one do any employment law. Uh, and I just, by accident, ended up being the person who put up their hands and said, I'll teach myself some So I got the books. I'm good at studying. Studying's, you know, a special skill. So I, I, you know, I just taught myself employment law from books. So um, how old were you at that point, Paul? About 30. About 30. And that's when I thought, well, OK, employment law is a lot more interesting than social security. As you'll know from your experience, interesting but troubling. But, I mean, social security law is like the individual versus big, anonymous bureaucracy. Employment law pits one person or one group of people against another person. And so it's a lot more emotional. Uh, it's a lot more interesting. and loved employment law. And then I thought, well, since the people on the other side are all solicitors and barristers and thought, well, the best of the qualifications and that all went well because I can, I, can, I can learn anything. So basically, I and ended up as a, as a, as a uh, solicitor. We're doing the same stuff, really. The bottom line, I suppose, is this, is that I never wanted to be a lawyer, particularly. Still not, still not fussed about it. But always wanted to be a campaigner, right? And uh, doing employment law was a way of being on the side of those at the bottom of the labour market. Air assistance security guards, the warehouse workers, the catering assistants, the cleaners, the workers from Eastern Europe and Goa and uh, who work for the minimum wage or sub wage, always wanted to be on their side. This was my way of doing that. And of course, when I come across lawyers, it's normally on the other side. You know, I think, well, they're a bad, bad lot, <laughs> which is very, very... Because I did end up working for a big law firm for a time, uh, uh, before leaving to set up my own uh, enterprise. But, um, yeah, and of course there are some lovely lawyers who do legal aid work, so I'm being very unfair to them. But as a whole, and, you know, you, <laughs> and you, you know, I mean, the real heroes are those who work in citizens' advice, those who work mm -hmm. in welfare rights centres, money advice centres, the voluntary sector, 
who are working for low wage, relatively low wages, really. I have to deal with a lot of very complicated law about debt and housing and social security and employment law with not much uh, reward. And, and, and they tend to have a feeling for policies. And what uh, often distressed me about lawyers was that, you know, you would think about law as though it had come down from heaven, fully written, you know, that it was, it, it was just a question of learning what, you know, section 34 D14 say, you know, and if you could just recite it, you know, that would be great. You didn't need to know where it came from, what the thinking was, what the social policy objectives were. You just needed to know, you know, just the kind of skeleton bones of what was there. And that makes it all terrible and, and unemotional. But of course, law's not like that at all. You know, law comes as a result of great battles, uh, political and economic battles, very difficult social policy choices, all sorts of interesting social policy wonks thinking about things, researchers working hard to come up with the best research, campaign groups fighting over things, you know, learning from around Europe uh, and and the kind of zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And the law is fantastically interesting, if you can think about it in that way, not as a kind of, not as a kind of holy text, come down fully formed. So that's always been my approach. And uh, so I know it sounds a bit grand, but there we are, you know. Uh, no, it's good. That's, it, that's, just, that's just what I'm like, Sarah, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it's interesting. There's two things that sort of popped into my head. It was interesting for me, I mean, taking you back again. So you, you had a, a difficult adolescence, but instead yeah. of being in, a lot of people may have become more introspective, more internally focused if they have a difficult time, but you chose to look outside, what what made you what made you do that? Why, what sort of yeah, what triggered you to look outside rather than to sort of go down that spiral of you know self, which a lot of people can do. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't, I don't. I mean, I was very. I mean, I'm a very broad based kind of. Uh, I'm a very broad-based sort of political person now, and I'm a person who thinks, well, there's a great deal of wisdom in, in liberalism, including economic liberalism and conservatism with a small t and socialism with a small f. And not when I was 16, I was. So 16, you see, 15, 16, as I'm kind of 16, maybe clambering my way out of this little bit of uh, existential despair or adolescent angst, but existential despair from the inside, uh, then I would, uh, you, you know, I was... Uh, I was seized by a sort of uh, political uh, kind of enthusiasm. I thought, well, look, you know, I can't be feeling I'm all right. Being in a relatively middle class place, you know, with in a relatively uh, fortunate circumstances. And uh, look, you know, in, in a world of poor people, in a, in a nation of poor people, they're surrounded by poverty and injustice. And... Um, uh, and it's in a sense it was that it was that commitment to fairness and equality and social justice that sort of brought me out of my interior place into a and we must do something. It was like I began to see sort of self pity as um, as the kind of enemy, you know, as a sort of thing that had to be battled against. And sometimes when I feel, see see people who are falling into depression, and this is again is a bit harsh and unfair, but I think sometimes people need. A bit of socialist therapy, I used to call it. 
you know, people need socialist therapy. You know, if they're feeling too sorry for themselves, you need to take them to, you know, take them to a very poor place, you know. Go and visit, you know, go and visit the slums in Mumbai or go and visit, go and visit some housing estates in North London. And, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and go and spend a day with a domiciliary care worker visiting disabled people and wiping their bottoms and then see how you feel about yourself. <laughs> and that was, and that was, you know, and they just saying, remember, there are people who are less fortunate than you. And I was also caught up in a kind of, um, what you might call the romantic enthusiasm for socialism. So back in the, in the, in, in the, in, in the kind of, in the uh, mid-70s and the uh, early 80s, that was still right, Sarah. Or it was before, before we all became uh, New Labour. It was, it, it, was, it, was, it was a time, it was a time, it was a time when a certain sort of idealism, a certain sort of utopianism was uh, all right. Which, of course, you know, you since learn it's got a very great good side, that sort of utopianism, and a very dark underside with it. But at the time, <laughs> maybe you're not looking at the dark underside of socialism in the same way that liberals don't look at the dark underside of liberalism and conservatives don't look at the dark underside of conservatism. Yeah. Because this is a balance that is supposed to come sort of with more reading, more thinking, and even getting old, and not necessarily, of course. It does depend upon thinking and reading. Uh, um, yeah, it was, it was. I, I regarded it as socialist therapy. When I was 16 years old, I think, I used to go to my... Slightly posh school, well, not posh, just some state school, but I went to my school and um, it was nonetheless in a middle class area, and I got myself a sort of airman mouth style kind of uh, jacket and, and my little socialist international badges, and, and we'd walk, walk around. And, uh, I was a clever kid, so I was always top of my politics and economics classes, and I tell everyone I was a communist. <laughs> It's kind of stupid, right? It's stupid. <laughs> I, I look back when I look back in embarrassment, but nonetheless, it was sort of well. It was morally well-intentioned. That is, I really did always have for some reason this kind of egalitarian sentiment, which has a sort of religious quality. So I often, I, these days, I tend to think about political ideology being linked to religious sentiment. And uh, one of the things that you know, I mean, socialism can be bad for your religiosity in some respects, because you tend to become self-righteous. But um, it, is, it, is, it is good for your egalitarian sentiment. You know, a lot of times you really do think of each person as being equal. It's a kind of, it's a sort of religious spirit, I think. Mm. And I, I carried that, maybe it was from a mum who was quite religious. So I think I took her religiosity, maybe her sort of egalitarian spirit that comes out of certain kinds of Christianity. Uh, and, but of course, I'd, I'd long ago decided all, all religion was nonsense, and I took it into uh, took it into my sort of political into political space and said, "Well, this egalitarian is isn't something about actually how we treat people in the world, or something like that." Well, I mean, whether you whether you have a religion or social justice or whatever as 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 the label for doing good, doing good is still doing good, which is. Good. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it, it, it is, but of course, socialists don't only do good, you know, historically. Yeah. And they, 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 people have called themselves socialists and done bad things, uh, as yes. well as good things, some good things and some bad things. And, yeah. uh, you know, fess it up, fess it up. And it's, and it's interesting. The other thing that occurred to me was I obviously, you know, we met, gosh, when, when, when did we meet? Was it late? I can't remember now. Was it 90, 97, 98? 97, 98, yeah. And um, so I only knew you with the law part. And I haven't, 
you know, all the times that we've talked, I've never really sort of taken on board the other stuff. And I, and I guess, you know, one of the things that occurred to me in sort of listening to you just talk about your background was that all of the stuff that you'd done prior to getting into the law had possibly helped you with what I consider to be one of your key skills as well as well as you know your studying but is that ability to communicate difficult concepts and complicated legal stuff into very simple terms and I would imagine that in terms of the people that you were dealing with in the social work side that also became part you know you had to explain those things to people with a limited understanding of them so that really set you up for that is that right it's sort of, Sarah. I think uh, what, one of the things that's difficult about social security campaigning, the thing that I still do, now universal credit campaigning, never given that up, always do. One of the things that makes it difficult is people say, oh, this is so complicated. The social security system is so labyrinthine that we just can't get to the bottom of it. We can't have a debate about this. We can't have a discussion about it because it's all too fiddly to understand it just makes me cross because it's not really it's fairly straightforward and in order to get anywhere with a campaign i suppose you know whatever kind of campaign it is you've got to be able to strip it down to essentials and one of the things you've got to do with the law is you've got to understand what social policy objectives are trying to be reached here what is the thinking behind it um, and unless you understand that, it becomes hard to understand the law. You can't keep it in mind. If someone just recites, well, this is section 98.3.2, and this is what it says. Now, memorise that. That's not going to be easy. If somebody says, well, look, you know, there needs to be some issue about how, when it's fair and when it's unfair to dismiss you, and this is how this came about, and... We're trying to understand what is fairness when it comes to letting someone go. And these are the sorts of the central principles, this, this and this. Um, people have got more chance of understanding it if you sort of put about put in something about what people were thinking, what they were aiming to achieve, and also how it how it differs uh, around the world, how it um, and how it's evolved, I suppose. So in other words, you turn it into some kind of story. That's what I was so just going to say. Yeah, yeah you were going to say that's because that's your thing, isn't it? Story letter, uh, explanation. Well, you're right, basically. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, you're good on this stuff. And it's true that um, stories, you have to turn it into a story. You have to turn the law into some kind of story. Or your campaign into some kind of story. But essentially kind of what you're saying is that every piece of law does have a story behind yeah, it. Yeah, it just does, it does, yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's not how academic lawyers sometimes see it, because it's not... But it is, of course, it's 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 a story. It's, it's, it's there for a reason. We don't have a... For example, in the UK, we have a, a disability discrimination law. You know, you, you, can't, you can't dismiss people because they're disabled or for a reason related to their disability, and there's all sorts of provisions about that kind of thing. And that was a result of a long and bitter and interesting campaign by disabled people in the early 1990s who were chaining themselves to buses and trains and railings and shouting outside down these streets, and gathering together outside the constituencies of members of parliament. It was one of the best organised campaigns ever. And uh, the government 
didn't want to bring it in at all. But it was, uh, and then, you know, you just think, well, okay, why did they not want to bring it in? You know, well, because the disability discrimination law is a little bit difficult, because if we think about it, well, to have a disability discrimination law, you're going to have to agree on who is disabled, is there to look after disabled people. Well, we only have to think about it for a minute to realise we're going to have to decide who is and who isn't disabled. This is not easy at all, as, as you will know from your... So, what about people with poor mental health? Well, they could be disabled, I suppose, as well. What if people have got quite a serious disability, but as long as they keep taking the medication, they're all right. Are they included? Yes, they are, but, but why? You know, uh, and if you've got a disabled person... What have you got to do for them? Have you just got to treat them as well as your other employees or have you got to look after them a bit more? Take into account their disability. The well, answer is yes, you have. But, you know, it's interesting to imagine that you're sort of the person who is trying to draft a disability discrimination law. And think through just the sheer practicalities of what, uh, of what you have to do in order to make it work. Uh, because whatever great ideas and campaign ideas you've got, you've got to turn them into something that works. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that can be difficult, particularly in relation to disability discrimination. Yeah. It's very difficult, as it turns. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> having, uh, having had to apply it, it? <laughs> on the other indeed, side indeed. Of, the, of the fence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, I've done both sides as well, Sarah, these days, because I look after charities as yeah. employers these days. And it is very difficult, indeed. And now you know. There's some people who do definitely count as having a disability, some people who definitely don't count as having a disability, and a big grey area in the middle. One thing that makes law difficult to operate yeah. is big areas of uncertainty. And you're just thinking, oh, just please tell me, yes or no. <laughs> and it doesn't work and like that. <laughs> and you say, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Best assume they are. And, um, yeah. I'm not against disability discrimination law on balance, but you have to, um, you know, with all social policy measures, what I've come to realise, and I think all come to realise who end up being political pragmatists, is that there's, uh, there's, there, there's a winners uh, and losers. That is, you know, ideology, whether you're a socialist or a liberal, an economic liberal, a political liberal, a conservative, your ideology, your ideological baggage will not give you as much as you want. Yeah. In the end, you're going to actually have to sort of do something. To some extent, you want to say, stop talking about big ideas and tell me what you actually want to do, you know. And whatever you want to do, whether it's you know increasing taxation or bringing in some new law about tenants' rights, um, there's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. Every social policy, politicians are kind of condemned, Sarah, to say, we have a set of lovely policies and all there will be is winners. All of you chaps, all of you women, you're all going to be better off as a result of what we're doing. It's kind of the big lie. It's not really even their fault. Mm. <laughs> what can you do? But the truth is, whatever you do, on a social policy measure, there'll be winners and there'll be losers. It's a great trade-off. Yeah. Those who pretend they'll only be winners are, are not really in the end 
to be trusted. It's best to front up the fact there's going to be losers. And, you know, there's lots of areas I can talk about this in. You know, my favourite one, which I'm sure we completely disagree on, but my favourite one <laughs> is in relation to housing policy. You know, I am a, you know, I'm a very concerned that uh, young people have been taken out of the housing market in the UK, partly around the world as well, but especially in the UK, especially in the south of England. Young people can't buy houses. Part of that is because they're being outcompeted by landlords buying out properties and renting them to them. The landlords are all lovely people, want to do good things, look after their tenants, but actually the effect of it is that young people get priced out of the housing market. So if you were me, what you would do is you would give tenants lots of rights yes, and you would uh, put big taxes on second home owners, you know, and uh, and you essentially tax them out of existence. Not completely out of existence, but, you know, you tax it. So you would change the financial incentives so that taking on a tenant was a risky business because the tenant had loads of rights and anyway, you were going to pay loads of taxation. So here we have a social policy called social policy measure to increase home ownership. And, you know, the government has kind of been persuaded of this argument gradually. And they're right. Um, but of course, there's losers, you know, there's losers to that and there's winners. And some of the losers will be short term losers. There'll be the lovely landlords who mean well, who end up having to put up the rent to pay the tax and... Uh, you know, some people who rely upon second homes for an income. Of course, there'll be losers. And then in the longer term, there'll be gainers. And what you can do in social policy is you can be sort of cowed, fear of the losers, into doing nothing. Uh, uh, anyway, another example yeah. of how uh, things No, it's, very, it's really interesting to sort of hear, you know, it is more complicated than... than than you think to make the law, but you, but also having that story behind it helps people understand the context and what the intention was behind it. And I think it possibly helps then to to apply it and to, like you say, to hold the meaning of it. And and one of the things that I was interested, so you were 16, you know, with this interest in, in social policy and doing good, were you a good communicator then? Have you always been a good communicator or is that something that has evolved over the years and, and with, with experience? I think so. And what I've always been good at is working one-to-one. -one mm -hmm. Working, you know, a, I can be a persuasive person. I'm good at presenting an argument. I don't know, I think it must be my mum's kind of evangelical spirit. I can get very kind of enthusiastic about ideas and because I study a lot and think through things a lot, like one-to-one -one persuasion. So in teaching, on the other hand, in big groups, took me a very long time to feel happy with. You know, am now, uh, really enjoy it now. But that was much more slow learning because I've got a kind of introspective. I'm not naturally as extrovert as some, I think. So it took me a while to learn. And I had to sort of almost think about any training sessions or any lectures or all these Zoom things that I do now as one-to-one -one conversations. And how have you found using Zoom? Have you found it a struggle? Because obviously you were used to training people live, um, like, like, like lots of us, and you've had to make, 
make this switch now to to Zoom. What what things have you sort of picked up from teaching on Zoom that that are different that you've had to do differently? Yeah, well, look, I'm, one thing says, as you know, Sarah, very low tech person, sort of super low tech, really. So when I get, it's just me. <laughs> well, yes, well, well, can. <laughs> you can imagine that, can't you? You can see that. <laughs> so anyway, so I so I've never, you know, once upon a time I did open air projector slides and I gave that up. The te te technology moved away from me then. And so I've never done a PowerPoint. People love my training. It goes very well, mainly because I'm um, very interactive. I mean, I think sometimes PowerPoints can be a barrier between you and the people. You know, we have lovely training handouts. We talk with them and we just have one very long conversation. You know, it's very interactive. I was mortified, first of all, because it just didn't feel right sitting in front of a screen training. Where are these people? It was like talking to the sky. And I've now got used to it, of course. You know, I think it's fine. You know, I quite like it. I mean, there's that great kind of, there's that great kind of a sound on, sound off kind of question. Uh, I, per, I prefer people to, uh, if possible, to, to, you know, not, not to be muted. Yeah. So uh, we can have a bit of that. I know they're there. Uh, and I, I really don't like it if they turn off their videos. I like to see them, make sure they're paying attention. <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that, that's important, obviously. So I try to do that. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed it. It's always taken a while to get warmed up. People have to learn they can trust you to ask stupid questions. I always say at the beginning. No question is too no question is too obscure, no question is too difficult. I like anything you say, please talk to me. Just please, anytime. We never have questions. You just fire away. When the spirit takes you, come forward, say something, anything. Yeah. Because really, you know, three hours of me talking at you, it'll be difficult. Yeah, that's how I've, I've enjoyed it actually now. I've really liked it. And of course, this is the future. You know, I think a lot about the future of work, Sarah, being an employment and a, a sort of general social policy person. And you think, you know, all these grand ideas about how will the world change post-lockdown uh, and all that. And you think, probably not very much. You know, there'll be like a great party when it comes to an end. Yeah. This seems to be what history teaches us, you know. Great pandemics, people hunker down. Eventually, they gradually fall out. And then eventually, it's safe and they will have a giant party. And the weird thing about this stuff at the moment, partly because of furlough, is that people... If they've held on to their jobs, and so far most have, some people are storing up money. Little hamsters storing up, storing up food, aren't they? You know, because people can't spend it. Yeah. <laughs> All the things that people spend money on, the pubs, and the restaurants, and the cinemas, and the theatres, and the foreign holidays, you can't spend it. So some people have got a little stack of money stored away, waiting for the great party. But what will change? So I, don't, so I think we'll just go back, go back from where we were. Um, but, but, and a big part, the world of work will change. And this is a very, very big part. You know, in my work as an employment lawyer, I've often had interesting arguments about homeworking. It comes up, you'll be familiar. Yes. Return from maternity leave and want to work part-time. That is probably just about all right, okay? Most employers go along with the idea part-time working, turning it down has become quite difficult now. Home working, on the other hand, has always been thought of as beyond the pale. It used to come up a lot in what we call indirect sex discrimination 
claims where employers had a no home working policy. That's kind of everyone. And uh, women argue, particularly post-maternity leave, it's tougher for women to have to do long commutes than it is for men to do have to do long commutes. And therefore, this indirectly discriminates against women. And therefore, it has to be objectively justified. Off it goes to the lovely employment tribunal. The poor old judge has to sit down there saying, well, it is the decision to not allow full homeworking objectively justified or not. And they always said yes. They always said, oh, you can't possibly expect people to work from home. Well, they could be having a rest, who's <laughs> making sure they work. Yeah. How are they going to get on with their college? How are they going to communicate? What could they possibly do? They're just going to be lounging around watching TV. And no one went with it, Sarah. You know, there are a few little exceptions at the top end of the sort of super clever who could be trusted. But, you know, basically no one worked from home. This was a very big deal. This has completely changed. Yeah. So it's going to become very difficult for employers to turn down homeworking requests. Firstly, because those at the higher end are going to say, unless you agree to me working from my nice home by the seaside two days, you know, two days a week, I'm just not working for you. And there's a lot of competition at the top end. They're super clever, techie people. There's a lot of competition. And if you don't offer them homework, you know, they won't come and work for you. Yeah. And then it cascades down. And then, of course, there's the indirect sex discrimination law. All these women and disabled people who want to work part-time from home when it's turned down, we'll all be going off to the employment tribunal asking the judge, well, judge, do you think that homeworking is practical or not? And the judge says, well, you've been doing it for a year. You know, <laughs> it doesn't look impossible, does it? You know, it doesn't look like the kind of thing. And that's what's called the objective justification defence in social security law. Is it a proportionate means of meeting a legitimate end? The words objectively justified uh, at all changes. So this makes a big difference to the world because people's quality, their felt, tangible quality of their living, it's so much about where they are and their commuting. One of the, I'm a big interest, I've got interest in research on happiness. It's not happiness research. One of the central findings of happiness research is do not commute. Do not commute. Commuting, very bad for your happiness. Don't do it. So it's a big deal commuting. An hour of stress in the morning and in the evening, even half an hour of stress in the morning and the evening is very bad for your health and well-being. Don't do it. So, you know, and I always say to people this, imagine you work from home one day a week. You're in the UK, so you actually get holidays, unlike the US. You work from home one day a week. How many days are you at home and how many days are you in the work? work? And the short answer is you're doing one day a week at home, you are home more often than you're at work. You only have to do the maths, you know, and, and there you are, maybe working 40, you know, 45 odd days, a 45 odd weeks a year in the UK, four days a week, that's 180 days. How many days in a year? 365. You're home more than you're at work. Even four days a week yeah. makes a difference. Um, possibly even more importantly, it makes a difference to the felt quality of people's lives. But it also makes a difference to where people live, right? What are you doing living in a big, ugly city? Why? 
Why are you in a big, ugly, grey, nasty city when you could be by the seaside? There are beautiful, cheap homes by the seaside where no one wants to go, you know. And frankly, you might as well go there. You know, it's worth having, you've got to go to work two or three days a week. You might as well, you know, have horrible commute two or three days a week or go and stay over in a cheap travel lodge or premier inn uh, and then just enjoy living by the seaside. Or living in the mountains or living in the Cotswolds, living... You know, it's living somewhere in the Lake District. Just live somewhere beautiful because it's better for you. And that's a big deal, Sarah, because the thing about the UK is the money is in the cities. You know, you know, London is relatively well off most of it. And Liverpool's doing well. Manchester's doing all right. Well, actually, Leeds is doing well. But, you know, the money's in there in the cities, right? But people have not got to be in cities anymore. Yeah. Then it all changes. If you buy houses in beautiful places by the seaside or in the mountains and the lakes, because they can, it's only the middle class really, it's not the bloody cleaners and security guards and my clients, by the way. But this is the you know, this is this is the the, the, the sort of middle class, middle income earners. Then everything changes. The landscape of the nation changes. Those towns which were quiet stop being quiet. Money goes to those towns because the people with money are living in those towns. House prices go up in those towns. That it's a, that's going to be the big deal. That will be the big deal. That's really interesting, actually. I think it will apply not just to the UK, but possibly around the world. The same situation yeah, yeah. is likely to be Absolutely. in place. But it, from, from a theatrical, you know, I'm interested in theatre and performance and stuff. And I'd imagine if the money flows to those sorts of places, then they'll be called for entertainment when, when the world opens up again. So there's a whole knock-on effect. You know, it's yeah. not just, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing when you think about that. That's, That's really a good point because I mean, the culture, the culture will go with it, you know. Yeah. And so the great culture, the great cultural, ten, the great cultural things, there's the theatres and so on, are in the big cities. Yeah. But where the when the money goes, when the money goes to the seaside, when the money goes to Margate, the theatres will go to Margate. Yeah. The money is going to Margate, by the way, already. But it's not. It's you know, it will accelerate. It's on the way up. Places like Margate are on the way up. Yeah. Interesting, and that's exactly what you do, Paul. You you sort of break something quite complicated and. And, and looking at that sort of horizon and make it sort of come alive for people. I think that's, that's what you do really, really well. And I, but not everyone can do that, especially in the field, you know, professionals in your, in your field or in other fields find it very difficult to make things simple and relatable and interesting and engaging for people. Why is it just because they're learning that law by rote or learning the rules by rote, like you said, or are there other factors at play there? Yeah, no, I think it's a problem if you learn things by rote rather than learning the sort of, rather than thinking about the kind of heart, it's the emotion behind it and the thinking behind it. I mean, I often, I'm actually also sceptic. I think if you ask somebody and say to them, you know, what is, can you summarise for me everything about employment law in you know, that's, that's a doable thing. We can do that. That's no problem. That complicated. Somebody says to you, it's very complicated. In answer to a question, in social sciences, in law, in arts, in everything except the physical sciences, someone starts off by saying, it's very complicated. It means either we're lying to you or we don't know what we're talking about. If someone says they don't... <laughs> it means they don't understand it well enough or we're not going to tell you 
it's also, I think, troublingly a kind of status thing. So, you know, lawyers want to say to you, oh, Sarah, it's very, it's very, it's very complicated. You want to be a very clever person like me to understand it. That's a nonsense. And here's my big bill. Because it's complicated. Um, you know, I, I always think the, the, the secret with employment law, I say, I always begin this in every session, it's a great deal more straightforward than you imagine. It really is quite simple. Few essential tenants, you know, you, uh, yeah, it's, it's really not that, it's really not that complicated. But the essence is straightforward. And so that is true in all the arts and humanities, all the great big ideas of the world outside physical sciences where you're just going to have to do some very complicated maths yeah. but outside outside of that you know you should be able to get it across in a few minutes really mm. otherwise it's not worth saying it's not worth knowing probably you know Brilliant. okay <laughs> so what i wanted to ask you next is so you do let's say you know you've you've got these campaigns that you're doing you've got or employment law training or something like that how do you prepare for trying to persuade people to care about the different causes that you're campaigning for? How do you prepare that argument? How do you sort of, you know, put that all together? Yeah, well, um, mm. what do you think about it? I mean, what, 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 I, I, wish, I think what support is that the, the, the beginning of the big picture. Right? Mm. So, I mean, you know, people's issue with any cause uh, tends to be uh, a wood from the trees. So what I try and do whenever I'm training or whenever I'm campaigning is wood from the trees. You know, get the big picture across and, and, and then fill in the gaps. But uh, people get lost uh, in the trees. They don't know what's going on. So I'm a, I'm, I'm, I don't really want to be a climate change campaigner because I find climate change campaigners often annoying. All that, all that kind of end of the world is coming to but nonetheless, it is a very serious issue. And I kind of feel that climate change campaigning is a bit... And someone asks you, what do you think about climate change? And you say, well, I've never really given it any thought. It's a little bit like someone in the year 1800 saying, what do you think about slavery? And you say in the year 1800, I've never really given it any thought. Not an option, you know. If you haven't given slavery any thought in the year 1800, you know, a few years before the uh, abolition of the slave trade, many years still before the abolition of slavery, then you're on the side of the slave. You're on the side of slavery, right? Not having, and I, so I think you condemn to do some climate change campaigning. I work on a, a, an unpopular campaign for nuclear power. I don't think there's a there's a there's a we can't do it without nuclear power. And one of the horrible things about climate change campaigners is many come from Greenpeace and uh, the Green Party, who bizarrely are opposed to nuclear power for their own strange reasons. But anyway, without getting involved in a lecture about that, let's say you want to explain climate change to someone. Then there's a few, then maybe there's like four essential things you've got to understand. So, Issue is points and just make sure you've got these because if you haven't got these things, you can't even begin to think about it. Right? The first thing, of course, is that the general energy consumption from all sources globally has been massively increasing in history and has increased over the past 20 or 30 years when we've known about climate change. So our energy, you know, whether it's from gas, uh, oil, uh, 
uh, coal, nuclear power. It's been increasing dramatically over the past 20, 30 years. And it is not going down. Energy demand is not going down. A lot of the world is poor and they are not going to carry on being that poor. The population of Nigeria will double. It will become the third largest country in the world in 30 years' time. People will want bars and air conditioning, bridges. Energy consumption globally is not going down, right? Don't get that into your head, right? Turning off the lights is not going to save us, right? Energy consumption will, if we're very fortunate to stay still, might go, probably will go up. It will, will go up, actually. Secondly, we've got to keep fossil uh, fuels in the ground, right? And we've got to uh, leave most of the coal and the oil and the gas in the ground. If we take it all out and burn it, we're in big, big trouble. It's got to stay in the ground. How do we do it, right? Three, we have to electrify everything, right? So we have to have electric cars. We have to have electric home heating. And we have to have electric industrial. Everything has to be electrified. Obvious points, but just make sure you understand it. Electrify everything. Now, electrify everything will not solve it, but you've got to generate the electricity cleanly. If you generate the electricity through coal or oil or gas, that doesn't help. You have as many electric cars as you like. Electricity is generated by coal, and lots of it is. That won't help at all. How are you going to generate that electricity? Well, there's only so many technological options. But what it means, having to electrify everything, by the way, change everything to be electrified, mm, yeah. is we probably have to triple, maybe quadruple, probably have to triple electricity generation. The question is not, how do you meet our need for electricity generation at the moment? The question is, how do we triple it? So that gives you a perspective on wind power and solar power, both of which I support, but which are nowhere near probably going to be enough even to meet our current electricity demand, let alone uh, tripled, quadrupled electricity demand. There's no good alternatives for nuclear power. Just look at the evidence. It's safe, it's reliable, it works. Just look at France. 70% of all of their electricity demand is met through nuclear power. They just made a decision back in the 70s to build nuclear power stations. It worked. Has there been an accident in France? Has anyone got any worse as a result of it? Absolutely not. Everyone, the world just needs to be like France and we'll all be fine. But you've got to understand those essentials. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you understand global demand is not going down. We must electrify everything. We must generate electricity without using fossil fuel. Unless you've got those three things right, you've got no idea what you're talking about. So the big picture, you must have a big picture. If you lose yeah. the big picture, you're going to be lost lost in the trees and you won't know what you're talking about. Cool, that's brilliant. Yeah, and I think I love doing the big picture and I also love doing to get people into the big picture, a story about potentially, like if I was doing that, I would add in possibly start with a story about someone in Nigeria to show how their situation wasn't going to go backwards as a, as a, you know, any one of those big points has, you could 
lead into yeah. them from a story yeah, no, to get absolutely. people into it. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. no, absolutely. So you know, yeah, yeah, I think a lot about Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you for that. So so getting those really big picture points. And it's also thinking about where people are when they start off and where you want to get them to. I expect you think about that as well, don't you? You know, who who when I'm talking to people, what's their current beliefs about something and where do I need to get them to? It maybe not I don't know, is that something you think about consciously? Because that seems to be, you know, where where you that's in, you're taking people on a journey, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, what you've got to be is um, is all, almost motivational, isn't it? I mean, that's your good thing. You're good at being a motivational speaker. But, you know, you've got to motivate. You know, I think I'm going to sit down with these people three hours and talk to them about employment law, and they're going to remember some stuff about these three hours. But in the end, I've got to persuade them that this matters. Yeah. This is important. Yeah. And they can do something useful. They've got some responsibility to learn. But it's interesting, and it will make their lives better. Yeah. If they knew more about employment law, which is terribly interesting. Because they've got to go away. What matters is how they behave after these three hours. And they have an employment law question. Will they go away and look up the references that I've given them and make a bit of an effort? Will they actually do it? You've got to, it's got to be sort of motivational, hasn't it? It's got yeah, to be. They've got, you want them to take action. Whether you want, them to, you want them to do stuff. Learning something. To, yeah. yeah, you've got to kind of like inspire insofar yeah. as you can. And um, I also think... Um, I talk about keeping it simple. You've got to kind of, I think, respect people's intelligence. I yeah. think that's a, a big deal for what it's worth. Um, uh, although, you know, you've got to say, well, here's a big picture of people can understand time. People are pretty clever. Yeah. Not that difficult. Not that hard to understand. Yeah. You know, we can get that across. People are clever. People are clever. You know, half the population went to university. Yeah. A lot of the other ones have got, you know, good qualifications. People read books. They listen to interesting documentaries. They talk about that. People are not stupid. You know. Make you know, assume that people can understand what you're saying. If you put it, if you if you if you thought about it enough and presented it, well enough. You should be able to get across what might appear to be complex ideas reasonably simply. So if you had to summarize from your experience and your opinion, the top three things that people need to focus on if they want their message to land those three things would be what? Well, there's got to be something sort of uh, emotional uh, about it. It's got to be about caring about people. Um, so feeling, you know, feeling, uh, don't make it uh, dry, mm. make it uh, emotional. Mm. Two, assume that people are clever. Assume that people are intelligent, that they can follow an argument, and it's your responsibility to put that argument in a way in which they can follow. But people like it when you respect their intelligence, when you say this thing, like a big complicated, you can follow this, you can do this, you can understand this. And whatever you do, keep it short. Short. You know, <laughs> what you explaining climate change, ideally in no more than you know, six sentences. You know, yeah. we want we want it short, emotional, but still. People's intellect as well as um, just their gut. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing all of that thing. And I, I think we're going to put. Well, I'll come back to you to get the links for the various things that you're working on in a little bit. I do have some standard questions to ask you before I let you go. Um, first thing is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? Well, I think it's enabled me to have interesting conversations with people. 
it's, it's been nice to get to know people and um and yeah by people cool and have you ever had a bad speaking gig where it's all gone wrong have you have you had one of those experiences where you you're like oh no i never want to have that happen again in recent times not so much i've had one or i had one or had one a little while ago where i, had, I did a zoom call and uh uh, and I was doing a, I was doing employment law for managers in charities, and um, I normally teach um, sort of chief executives and senior managers. And this was a course for junior managers on uh, employment law. And uh, I talked for three hours, and it was there was mortifying Sarah. They sat there in silence. They just sat there quietly, kind of looking a little bit phased. Because partly because they're little junior managers, oh, I'm having horrible now. Uh, they're sort of team leaders. They're at junior managing level, and these kind of big questions about employment law are something they've never really thought about. You know, they've never had to make redundancies or recruit people or discipline people or deal with grievances and all those kind of difficult things you have to do in the workplace. And they're sort of sitting, sitting there looking at me, oh my God, really? We've got to do these things. They sat there in silence almost for three hours. And it's quite haunting, as you'll know, if you talk to people and they're silent for three hours. And so I thought, oh, I'm not sure that went very well. <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, they're all very polite. So, oh, thank you. So I went to the, the, the boss afterwards. I think that was all right. I might have been talking over their heads here. You know, they might have. Um, but no, they loved it. That was great. Really liked it. They felt respecting. They felt respected. They thought, here is this person who comes to talk to us about this very complicated, difficult thing. So, you know, that was reassuring, but it was quite haunting having to, uh, it's quite haunting, isn't it? Having to talk to people. It's hard work. Because <laughs> it's like you're having to like G yourself up. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, it's like when people ask you a question, it's like you can feel the emotional energy flow through it. Oh, yeah. question. That's, if it's a stupid question, you think, no, that's a great question. Well, yeah. And yeah. you can fire onwards. But without that, you've got to kind of almost inspire yourself. You've got to look out, look out in the sky and think, God. Give me, me help here. I need, I need, I need something to. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a really you're important. Trying, you're desperately trying to make your jokes, and you know, and all the rest <laughs> of it. They're just sitting there looking at you. <laughs> but it's true. It's this is why it's always. I always think of speaking as a dance between the the speaker and the audience, and yeah, yeah. in the same way as yeah, yeah. theatre is, and because you're yeah. getting energy from each other. And if you yeah, yeah. if it's one sided, you know that session probably was was absolutely exhausting. Because yeah, you yeah. you had to create all the energy for that session, so it's um, it's hard. Yeah, no, it's very hard. So, I'm so exhausted after that session, I just felt really worn out for the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> I had to generate all that energy myself. I felt good that they liked him. I thought, for God's sake, say something. <laughs> Absolutely cool. Yeah, yeah. Right now, I'm really hesitant to ask this next next question, having uh, knowledge of how many books you've got. If you had to say the one book that's had most impact on your life and why, what would that be? Oh, okay. That's a very interesting question. So, you know, I would say, um, I would say, so like I'm, I've got this kind of religiosity side. So I think we'll have to, um, most recently, most inspirational book for the last years, possibly, although it's quite a tricky book. Book by Marilyn Robinson, Obama's favourite novelist, who wrote a great book called Iliad, won all sorts of prizes. And she wrote a book on religion. 
uh, called What Are We Doing Here? Uh, great book. I think everyone should read that. Um, but probably the most inspirational book in terms of the longest standing is by someone, uh, is the famous Carl Jung. He wrote endless books. And you have to watch out for Carl Jung because he's a nasty piece of work, Carl Jung. He's <laughs> not a good person, right? Uh, don't, 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 even, don't, even, don't, don't start calling yourself a Jungian or imagining that he's some sort of, a, you know, a white Christ or something. It's kind of, it's a bit of a mixed bag, right? Um, probably the most interesting thing uh, of our times, uh, um, in some respects, albeit bored. a good place to start is modern man, sorry, man orientated, modern man in search of a soul. Uh, so, uh, yeah, modern man in search of a soul, young, big influence on me. I've never read any of the young books, uh, but that's a nice, accessible one. And uh, more recently, because of really why, why did that have such an impact, Paul? Well, you know, what, what it is about Jung is that he takes religion seriously. So he's, he, you know, he's, he's, he's a, uh, uh, how can we say? So he just loves religion. So I love religion. I kind of like all of them. But I like a lot of religions. And I think also you should practice religion as well. He's the unconscious person. So we have Freud, Sigmund Freud saying, well, here we have an unconscious it's full of interesting dreams that just arrive. You know, our minds are full of stories. They're unconsciously generating stories every night. And these dreams are terribly interesting. But for Jung, but for Freud, of course, well, you know, they're just kind of uh, sexual stuff kind of wrapped up in wrapped up in, wrapped in stories. And if we get to the heart of it, it's all about sex. Mm. So Freud, it's all about sex. Jung takes up Freud and says, look, okay, well, the unconscious, the great discovery of Jung was the unconscious and the kind of storytelling that goes on unconsciously. Our minds sort of both during the night in our dreams and kind of in our general imagination, which is, but this is in the end about not a search for sex, not a search for power, not a search for status, a search for meaning. It's all... Religion is the great quest for meaning in the world, and dreams are part of the broader quest for meaning. What they're doing is they're taking stuff from the experience, turning it into stories. They're turning it into stories which, if you look at them closely enough, include a certain kind of mythological or religious content. In a sense that I, I don't, he's, he's, he's very, very bad therapist. No one should ever do Jungian therapy. He's a terrible politician, not a very nice person either, I think. And, you know, but very, very interesting. He sort of, he's part of that kind of, um, how can we say, liberal religious people. Uh, and and the, liberal, the liberal religious have got one great argument. And the great argument is this, you know, is that there's only faith. Only faith positions. Those who think they're those who think that they're not through, they're not living in a faith. They're just living in an unacknowledged and probably less interesting faith. They're probably believing in all sorts of weird progress or human rights or therapy or new age crystal healing or something, uh, and or, or science even. That people carry around faith positions with them. In other words, a faith position is something that you just kind of believe 
without any evidence, but you just kind of believe it as somehow a truth about the world. Uh, and the argument is that, you know, people need to front up to what their faith positions are. You know, a faith position in human rights, that's a good thing. You know, having faith in human rights, we're not against it. Sounds like a great plan, you know. Having faith in therapeutic idealism, not a bad plan. But, you know, at least front up to the fact that it is a faith position. Yeah. You know, instead of talking down to the religious, except that you are carrying around certain other kinds of faith positions. And there are no, there are no, there are no non-mythological, non-faith alternatives. And so Jung is part of that sort of grand argument. And there are many good exponents of that argument more recently. Um, but John Gray, probably the best. But, you know, it's the best argument. In the end, it's the best argument for the religious. And I think in the end, uh, it'll win. You know, and uh, religion, will come back. religion will come back and they will. <laughs> we'll have to, it's, I have to tell our daughter Isabel that, that she's got a faith position, even though she doesn't believe <laughs> in religion. She believes in herself, doesn't she? She's always saying, she's always saying, my lovely daughter is always saying, she's saying, I just believe in myself. And I say, that really, really sounds like a faith position. I mean, that sounds like a, like a it's hard to believe in anything that could be more like a faith position than that. Good luck with it. Happy go with it. <laughs> she's, she's, it's lovely that she's got that much uh, confidence, bless her. So good, yeah, right. Her. And, and, uh, and the next question is, what's the best bit of business you've advice you've had and why? I think, I think it's this, and it's a very pragmatic, boring one, which is that all of your customers are going to come from, it's all about trust. Business is in the end about trust, particularly if you're going to give employment, do employment or work. They must trust you. Mm. Trust is the most precious thing that you can have, you know. You must cultivate, nurture that trust. How can you have people trust you? I tend to believe just give people things and then give them more things. Yeah. So, you know, I give away stuff. I give away, you know, I, I do little guides to things. I, uh, you know, uh, I just send out to people expecting nothing, you know. I do free training. So you just come, come along. How you know? I might be a bloody idiot. You don't know. Come along for <laughs> my training or find out. It's free. I don't, I don't know. If you don't, you know, the nice thing about marriage, if you've got to use me, you can never phone me again. I don't care. It work. You know, it's up to you. You know, a lot of employment lawyers out there. Not very good, of course. But, you know, there's a lot of employment lawyers out there. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, so, so give things to people so they can learn to trust you. And remember that almost all of your work, and I think this is actually just empirically true, almost all of your work will come from your clients or from the contacts of your clients. You know, it'll be from, you know, I work for uh, many charities. And what I've discovered is that charities know other charities, you know, that it tends to be personal recommendations bring people in and businesses and other businesses. So try and work on those that know you. It's very hard to make business from cold calling. Yeah. There are some people, of course, who are special about this. There might be sources of referral. So in, in for, for employment lawyers love accountants, we love accountants. Yeah. Because accountants are talking to small businesses all the time. When small businesses get in trouble, they phone their accountant. And they assume that their accountant knows everything. And, you know, they know nothing about employment. 
that if you can cultivate the trust of Fergus, uh, that's good. But it's about trust. Okay. Uh, think about trust and uh, building trust and uh, getting people to trust you and give someone. Cool. Brilliant, that. That's great. Right. Now, last question. If you could have one mentor and they could be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh, I liked, uh, I liked, um, so back to the religiosity thing. I like, uh, there was was, uh, the former uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy called Ryan Williams. Yeah, Ryan Williams is great because he just—he looks just like an Old Testament prophet. He's got this like long, straggly white beard, and slightly untamed hair, he's like Moses or someone. And uh, he's like—he's sort of um, incredibly well read on uh, theology and religion. And he's very thoughtful, and also, also uh, a lovely person. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I'd like to like to sit down with Rowan one day. Say, let's have a let's have a chat about religion. <laughs> let's try and let's try and let's try and work this through. Uh, yeah, so this is my aspiration. One day, to one day, to meet the great man, you know, my religious hero, uh, Ryan Williams. That's my, my aspiration. Well, ask him. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, happily, I have. I'm. 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 I'm, I'm probably will do one day. Get to meet him. So <laughs> Good. He, he, I. I the, the lo- anyway, one of the local priests who I spend a lot of time with. Uh, no someone who knows him. So, hey, one day, one day we'll meet and have a chat. I hope he's still alive. And, uh, <laughs> yes. Get one a bit, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, don't hang around. No, no. no, no. <laughs> cool. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for sharing all of that stuff. There's some great examples in everything you've said of exactly what you do so well, which is building those compelling arguments, making them simple and concrete and relatable for people to understand. And there's some absolutely wonderful speaking tips in there for people to take away. So thank you very much for that. And if people want to find out more about hiring you for employment law training or employment law uh, support, where's the best place to go for that, first of all? Oh, people can just people can email me anytime at uh, uh, paul at paularchertraining.co.uk. And you've Paul, got a website, uh, haven't you? It's Paul Archer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Employment yeah, yeah. Training. W, 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 yes. Paul Archer, uh, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lovely website, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, what about your campaign? So the campaign for nuclear power and other things that you're doing, where can people go to find out more about those? Okay, so the campaign for nuclear power is www.campaignfornuclearpower.com. We love the fact that we managed to get that domain name, the 99 pence, which just goes to show how unpopular our campaign is. <laughs> if you put in campaign for wind power, thousands of pounds, thousands of pounds, green energy, oh, tens of thousands. Campaign for nuclear power, 99 pence. Anyway, www.campaignfornuclearpower.com. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's the one where uh, easily accessible, uh, easily accessible one. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much again. Um, is there anything that you feel like you need to say in order to call this interview complete? No, no, it's been really interesting. Thank you. How we love talking about ourselves. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. Okay. Take care. See you soon. Anyway. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed meeting Paul and got a lot of tips to help you speaking. He is a great guy, a brilliant man, and a fantastic dad as well. I would say that, but um, it's true. We did have some feisty arguments about employment law when we were married, as most of the time we were on opposite sides, unfortunately. And if you want to find out more about working with Paul or how to support some of his campaigns, we've put a link to the websites in the show notes, and you can also connect with him on LinkedIn. Just look up Paul Archer. As ever, if you enjoyed the show, then do leave a rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. I really appreciate the feedback and it helps the show get found too by other people who might benefit. Also, subscribe if you haven't yet done so. And once again, thank you so much for joining me. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, don't forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.